All right. Good morning, Renew Church. How are you this morning? Good. All right. So I have a question that I put up, and I want us to actually look at it. And I want us to actually talk amongst ourselves, if we could do that. And here's the question. Have you ever struggled with doubt? I'm talking as a believer, as a child of God, right, in God's family. Have you ever struggled with doubt? Okay. And then what I'd like you to do is what specifically did you doubt in your Christian life? Okay. We're going to find out how unspiritual you guys are. Okay. Just by this question. But would you turn to somebody... Doesn't matter if it's someone you know, it's a stranger, we're all part of God's family in this church. Have you ever struggled with doubt? And then what specifically did you doubt in your Christian faith? Can you spend some time doing that right now? All right, that's great. All right, let's wrap it up. I know we have more to share about our doubts, but let's wrap it up and uh, if I can get your attention up here. You guys like to talk, I tell you. That's a good thing. All right, if I can get your attention up here. All right, so how many of you have ever struggled with doubt as a Christian? Can I get a show of hands? What? That many of you? Oh, how unspiritual you are, okay. As I look around, all of us, right, I I thought I saw every hand raised, struggles at one time or another with doubt. And struggling with doubt is something I want to talk about. Maybe some idea was presented to you an academic or a social or a cultural idea that seems to hit at your soul, that seems to stimulate your mind, and it seems to run, but it runs contrary to your Christian faith. You feel perplexed, you feel conflicted, you feel confused, and you struggle with doubt. Or maybe an unexpected circumstance comes barreling into your life that stops you in your tracks. A sudden tragedy or a catastrophe, enters without any kind of warning, and you feel the overwhelming nature of the situation, and you end up doubting. Or maybe it's a lingering problem that won't go away, and you prayed and prayed and prayed that this issue would pass, but it continues without any real resolution, and you feel the disillusioning silence of an almighty God. You know, a myriad of feelings, emotions, thoughts, and ideas can race through your hearts and minds that leave you doubting the Lord in some way, shape, or form. So when you struggle with doubt as a Christian, you undoubtedly feel like a failure, don't you? You feel like you weren't strong enough spiritually to handle the doubts, that you weren't wise enough, that you didn't have enough spiritual insight to deflect doubt, or you weren't faithful enough, you weren't an obedient disciple, and you lacked faith, and that is something that actually shames you, or you're not committed enough. Boy, if I was just more committed, right, then I would have this uh, 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 bulletproof type of quality that I could, that uh, doubts could bounce off me, and because of that, you beat yourself up, don't you? I have in my life, when the New Testament presents doubt in the Bible, whether it comes up in the Gospels or the letters, every time it refers to believers and not unbelievers, right? Now that sounds like a Captain Obvious type of statement, right? Well, of course. I mean, you have to be inside in order to doubt, right? But here the New Testament 
points out and very specifically points out that doubt is in reference to those who are saved, those who are born again, that you're regenerated, that you're redeemed, that you are a part of God's family. It's always in reference to those who are in God's family. They're the ones who doubt. And doubt is a reality that is true of every one of God's beloved children. And it's something that, you know, maybe it was an elephant in the room, you know, in your life when you came out to church, but it's something that I want to share with you. As a matter of fact, Jesus continually exhorts his disciples over and over and over again not to doubt. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 21, 21, he tells his disciples, truly I tell you, if you believe and not doubt. Mark eleven twenty three. if anyone does not doubt but believes, and he's talking about the anyone being his disciples. Luke 24, 25, how foolish and how slow of heart to believe. How foolish to doubt, right? John 20, 27, stop doubting and believe. Now, why address doubt over and over and over again while Jesus was on this earth with his 12 disciples? It was because his disciples had a tendency to doubt. And doubt is something that occurs in the life of every believer at one time or another. This morning, I want to address the area of doubt. And it's highlighted in our study of a person that we know very well, but maybe we're surprised had this issue of doubt, and that is John the Baptist. Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 11, and the title of my message is Dealing with Doubt. Dealing with Doubt. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You can follow along with me. After Jesus had uh, finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Verse four, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Verse six, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us. We ask, Lord, that wherever we are, whether we're on a mountaintop or whether we're in a valley, whether we're in a place of indecision or whether we're even in a place of stubbornness, Lord, we pray that wherever we are, Lord, encourage, teach, rebuke, instruct. We ask that you uh, would speak to us in a very real way. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, 
Amen. Okay, so the first point, if you're taking notes, very simply, is the truth about doubt. See, in dealing with doubt, we have to understand, number one, the truth about doubt. Let's look in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So in chapter 10, and we've been studying this, uh, Wilson, Mark, uh, Jonathan, uh, they've been very, very faithful in going through this idea in chapter 10 that Jesus has been training his 12 disciples, that it's been an intensive training before sending them out. So now Jesus sends them out, and Jesus resumes his ministry of proclaiming the good news that he has come, that he is the Messiah, right? Now, in verse 2, something very interesting happens. Let's look. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples, verse 3, to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Wow! Whoa! Think about who's saying this. This is John the Baptist. If there was ever someone you didn't expect to say this, it was this man, John the Baptist, right? Well, let me give you some context so you'll understand. Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have problems, right? And that's another obvious statement. Problems are going to come up in this life. As you live in this fallen world, Problem after problem after problems will arise. And with problems comes the tendency to doubt. Now, we want to unpack this. Why was John in this place? Why was John um, um, having this issue? Right? Well, we see here Matthew 3 3. Okay? And I'm going to go through this just a little bit so that you understand the context. All right? Here, Matthew, the gospel writer, exclaimed, This is he, John the Baptist, who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He is the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of Messiah. Make straight paths for him. So that was his job, right? Mark 1, 2. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And that was John the Baptist. Luke three sixteen. John says this. I, will bap- I baptize you with water... But the one who is to come is more powerful than me. And here he's specifically talking about Jesus. And he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay? John 1.29. Here, speaking about Jesus, he tells his disciples and those listening, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he tells everybody, follow him. Okay? John 1.33, again, speaking of Jesus, he says, I have seen and I testify that he, Jesus, is God's chosen one. John 3.28, it says, you yourselves can testify that I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride, and here he gives this analogy, John does, the bride belongs to the groom. The friend who attends the groom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the groom's voice, right? He's speaking of Jesus. That joy is mine and is now complete. Here again, speaking of Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. Wow, powerful words. Jesus, or, uh, John continually exclaims, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Follow him. Listen to him. 
Jesus is the one that uh, has come for his bride. And I'm uh, joyful because of it. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. His whole life is pointed to Jesus as Messiah. He's been faithful to announce that Jesus is the Christ. But we see in verse 3, he says, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Now, that's surprising, isn't it? What happened? How is it that one moment he's saying Jesus is the Messiah and the next moment, hey, are you the Messiah? You know, the truth or what happened was found in verse 2. Look at it. When John, who was in prison, those four words explain why he was doubting. The truth about doubt, and I want you to look at it, is doubt is activated by problems. Doubt is activated by problems. Problems activate our doubts, right? Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have problems. And those problems will give you a tendency to doubt. Okay, we want to unpack this, this idea of prison that John is in. Because this prison represents problems. It caused him to doubt and it causes us to doubt, okay? Number one, I want you to notice the problem of persecution. Can we put that up? The problem of persecution. Here, John the Baptist was hugely significant in the context of his time. And let me explain this to you. It was over 400 years since Israel had heard from a prophet. That means that God had been silent for hundreds of years. Malachi, who was the last prophet, had foretold that a messenger prophet would come to herald the Messiah's arrival. 400 years later, John bursts onto the scene and he does everything that Malachi prophesied. He even looked the part. He wore strange uh, clothing of camel's hair. He ate locust and wild honey, which uh, had everybody associate that with being from the wilderness, right? The prophecy. And so John the Baptist instantly became a rock star, okay? People came from everywhere in Israel to the desert to hear him. And you know what? The Holy Spirit was so powerful in John that people were transformed with his message of repentance. John was a national celebrity almost overnight. John was a national treasure, okay? And because John was wired uh, like a prophet would be wired, and because of his um, prophetic role, he called people to repentance. So he boldly, aggressively called out sin wherever he found it. He confronted sin, and he was no respecter of persons. That means he spoke uh, about sin and repentance to noble people, as well as to common folk alike. Now, here's the issue, and here's what happened. Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee at the time, and John was in his district, right, in the wilderness, where he was calling people to repentance, Herod Antipas seduced his brother Philip's wife, name was Herodias, okay? And he stole her away to be his own wife, okay? So he steals his brother's wife, another man's wife, and then he divorces his own wife so that he could be with uh, Herodias. But what made, what made matters a TMZ kind of affair was that Herodias was actually the niece of Herod Antipas. So he marries his niece, okay? John the Baptist won't have any of this. So he publicly condemns him 
as an adulterer. And he commands Herod Antipas to repent. I'm sure that goes over well with Herod, right? No, it doesn't. Herod heard this and he immediately put him in his most notorious prison. Now imagine, here John the Baptist is doing everything right, right? He's doing everything that he's been called to do. He is faithful to the Lord in every way. John the Baptist is perfectly in the center of God's will. And how is he repaid? By being thrown in a dungeon. And he's been there, the Bible says, for about a year and a half. Now, think about this. Talk about unfair. I'm sure as John is in this dungeon, he asks himself, does it pay to obey? Does it pay to obey? You see, doubt can creep in during times of persecution. And that is why Jesus trains his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, the previous chapter. And let me remind you in these verses what Jesus trains his disciples in. Verse 17, that you'll be brought before local councils. Verse 17, that you'll be flogged, whipped, and beaten. Verse 18, that you'll be handed over to governors and kings. Verse 21, that, you will be, that your immediate family will betray you. Verse 22, that you'll be hated by everyone. Verse 23, that you'll be persecuted. Verse 23, that you'll be on the run. Verse 28, that you will be murdered, that you'll be killed. Why does Jesus say all this? To get the disciples all excited about being a part of his discipleship? No, it's to prepare them for the reality of persecution. It's to get in their minds this idea of counting the cost. Does it pay to obey? And today, we may be called upon to take a stand for Christ, to reject ideas and practices that are so embraced in our culture, but in God's eyes, is wrong, is sinful. And don't be surprised when you're labeled a bigot, or you're labeled a hater, or you're seen as a fool, or you are, you are uh, considered an enemy of culture, of what's going on right now. The question that we can wrestle with is, does it pay to obey? You see, the problem with persecution is that it is unfair. We are called by God. We're doing what he's called us to do. And prison and persecution are our reward. Hey, listen, that can bring doubts, can't it? Let me give you another one. I want you to notice in the prison, not only persecution, but also, can we look at the next one? Pits. Pits. P-I-T-S. What does that mean? Well, Herod Antipas didn't put John the Baptist in just any prison. Herod didn't like what John said, and he embarrassed him in front of everyone. So Herod put him in his most infamous dungeon that is designed for the most notorious offenders. It was the Macarius prison. And it was a fortress uh, designed, and here was the, the interesting thing, designed of deep, dark, regular cells. They were deep, narrow pits. Macarius was located in the hottest part of Galilee. So you can imagine how horrible this was. This was designed to me the most unbearable, most unpleasant place to be. I love what uh, William Barclay, the great commentator, said. I think it was very insightful. Let me read this to you and think about this. John the Baptist was a child of the open wilderness. All his life he lived in wide open spaces with the clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of sky for his roof. 
Now he is confined within the walls of an underground dungeon. For a man like John, who never even lived in a house, this must have been for him an unbearable agony. Think about that. One moment, he's in the wide open spaces. He's an REI guy, right? Big five guy, right? All his life. Next moment, he's in a deep, narrow pit. Have you ever been in a proverbial pit? Let me share with you, pits are dark places, aren't they? Where you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Where you are confused and perplexed at how you got there. One moment you were healthy, the next moment you're diagnosed with cancer. One moment you're happy, the next moment an accident comes and you lose a child. One moment you're successful, the next moment you've been fired from the job that you've committed yourself to. Right? You're unemployed. One day you have a normal life. The next day the dark clouds come and tragedy comes without warning. And what do you say in response? God, how could you let this be a part of your plan? Lord, how could this pit be your will for my life? Pits are dark places. Pits are also lonely places. It's the place where you feel abandoned, where you are isolated from everyone else where you have prayed and prayed and prayed for deliverance only to feel the steely silence of God. And you ask yourself, God, where were you in this tragedy? Lord, why did you allow this to happen to me? Lord, why won't you help? Why won't you intervene? Pits are lonely places. Pits are also painful places. As we read the text, John has been in this prison, this dark, lonely pit for a year and a half, right? And let me share with you, I find that when difficulty occurs in my life, I have faith as long as it's temporary. The shorter the trial is, the greater my faith is. That's what I've noticed in my life, right? But what happens when the pain lasts longer than you expect? What happens when our faith is tested in a long, painful process? Doubt creeps in from our inability to deal with the negative circumstances, right? Prisons and pits. Now, problems activate doubt, right? So here's the third point. The problem of perspective. Can we put that up? Verse 2, let's look at it. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? I want you to notice that the Bible notes that John was hearing about the deeds of Jesus and it caused him to doubt. You might say, well, how in the world would that happen? Jesus is healing people. Jesus is, uh, is giving messages. People are being transformed. Why would this make, make John doubt? Let me explain to you, okay? The popular understanding of the Messiah was that he would come and immediately usher in the kingdom of God. All of Israel had this understanding, The disciples had that understanding, and John the Baptist definitely had that understanding, right? That the Messiah would overthrow Rome, that ungodly regime. The Messiah would judge all the evil in this world when he came. The Messiah would set up his earthly kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, right then and there. Guess what? Jesus wasn't living up to any of those expectations. Can you imagine John's conversation with his disciples? You know, hey, so how are you doing in prison, John? Well, terrible. I hate it here. But at least I know that Jesus is becoming greater and greater, even though I'm becoming less. So what's the news? 
Has he overthrown Rome yet? Has he set up his earthly kingdom? Is he marching on Jerusalem, right? No, not really. He's dining with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, right? He's healing people. He even healed the servant of a Roman centurion. Can you believe that? He's talking with Nicodemus and some of the religious leaders. He's sharing with them. What? What? He hasn't judged anything? He hasn't ruled? He hasn't uh, come with fire to reign? No. As a matter of fact, he's preaching on loving people, loving one another, right? On forgiving one another. He says that we should turn the other cheek even to the Romans. He says that he hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And notice John's response. Can this be Messiah? Or should we wait for someone else? Understanding that context, we understand John's limited perspective. Now here's a question I want to ask you. Was Jesus as Messiah going to set up an earthly kingdom just like all the prophets have foretold? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Well, here's another question. Will Jesus judge the world? Will he make all things right? Will he usher in God's kingdom? Will he bring peace and glory? And the answer is yes, absolutely he will. But they didn't understand that Messiah had to first come as a suffering servant. He had to come as the savior of the world. He had to come as a sacrifice for sin. You see, John the Baptist forgot the prophecies of Isaiah 53 and Psalm chapter 22 that those things had to be fulfilled first. John had to under, didn't understand. Jesus had to wear a crown of thorns before wearing a crown of gold. That Jesus had to be raised up with the shame of the cross before rising in glory on a throne of power. You see, it's easy for us today to criticize John the Baptist. He should have known. Oh my gosh, come on, duh, right? He should have known. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, But the reality is that we all, just like John, have a limited perspective. And I can argue with you that it would have been very, very difficult, almost impossible for John to have seen all this. The Bible even says it was a mystery. God's mystery was unfolded to us. You see, the point I'm trying to make is we don't know the beginning from the end. All we can see is what is in front of us, right? We can't see how everything fits, all the situations and all the circumstances. In this divine mosaic where God is building his story and his plan, we only can see a small patch piece of it. And we can be tempted to think because we see this patch piece that we know God's mind and we know God's plan overall. So that when reality sets in, right, we can start to doubt. You see, only the Lord sees the beginning from the end. And when God does something that defies our expectations, when God puts something into motion that challenges our perspective, can I share with you, we are tempted to doubt him. Can I get an amen? That happens in our lives. That's why Jesus tells us, or God tells us in his word, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Because we have a limited perspective. We only see what's in front of us. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. In dealing with doubt, we have to understand the truth. All of us doubt, right? 
All of us have issues because of problems in our lives. Then number two, let's look at the solution to doubt. The solution. Let's look in verse four. And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Verse five, get this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I want you to notice that Jesus turns John back to the scriptures. That Jesus tells John, look at the scriptures. Look at Isaiah 29, I'm fulfilling it. Look at Isaiah 35, I'm fulfilling it. Look at Isaiah 61, I'm definitely fulfilling that. And he wants to show him that he is right about what he's doing. Nothing has changed. He knows exactly from beginning to end what his plan is. And John, you need to trust me, right? The most powerful tool that we have in times of doubt is going back to the word of God, to meditate on its promises, to submit to its instruction, to obey its precepts, to trust in, the, in its truth. Let me share with you, and if, if you didn't get this already, let me give this to you. Doubt is not a sin. Doubt is not a sin. It happens because of what we've just studied. I love my favorite philosopher, uh, or one of them is Blaise Pascal, a committed Christian. Did a lot for the Christian faith and also for philosophy. Do you know what he said about doubt? He said, doubting is just thinking. Doubting is just thinking. We have this limited perspective, but we have minds and we're thinking. And sometimes the thinking overwhelms us. We don't understand everything. But that's all doubting is. Sometimes we need to doubt in order to learn greater truths. Sometimes we need to go through that time. I'm not saying always doubt, okay? That's not not my point, okay? But I am saying that there are times when we doubt and it's not a sin. You know what's sin? Unbelief, right? Jesus never condemns doubt in his disciples, right? He tries to steer them back, but he always condemns unbelief, right? The Pharisees, all those guys that uh, were of unbelief, Jesus condemns them. Why? Because doubt is a mind thing, right? Things happen in our lives that confound us, perplex us. It's a mind thing. Doubt or unbelief is a will thing. It is stubbornly refusing, even though we see what God is doing and saying, that's not of God. As a matter of fact, the religious leader says that's of the devil. And Jesus said, listen, that is an unpardonable sin to attribute what's happening, right, uh, to the devil when it's of the Holy Spirit. That's not going to be pardoned, right? So here's that idea. Unbelief is a sin, but doubt isn't. Why? Because it's a mind thing. And we go through it in our lives, okay? Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to switch gears real quick. And I'm not going to go, you know, really long with this, but I think it's going to help. We've been very biblical theological. I want to go a little bit practical, okay? And I think this will help. Uh, this is an exercise that I do in my life all the time. And it's something that helps me. And it helps me to conquer doubt in my life, okay? And uh, it, it, it helps with so much more, okay? So, what I want to do is uh, I, I ask three people to help me to volunteer. So can I have those three up here? Rachel uh, Rowden, can you come up, please? Uh, Mark, our college pastor, would you come up? And Wilson, Pastor Wilson, our lead pastor. Can you give them a hand? These are very VIPs, very important people. What's Mark doing? What? I'm just joking. Okay, that's good. Then... Uh, Let's get somebody, 
somebody else. Who, who can we get? All right. Come on up. Come on up. Okay. So we have three people. Can you, can you back over there, please, for a second? Not because I don't like you guys, but because I want, I want some room. Okay. So... <laughs> Listen, if doubt is a mind thing, okay, we've got to understand how many of us here believe that the Bible is absolute truth, right? That it's not just contains truth, but that it's absolute truth. Well, if we believe that, we have to endeavor to make the Bible the authority of our lives, not human religion, philosophy, experiences, reason. It's the Bible that becomes the authority of our lives because the battle that we face is our mind, right? And we ask ourselves, who controls your mind? Well, you might say, well, that's silly. I control my mind. Well, the Bible tells us that the mind is either in bondage to sin or it's a bondservant to Jesus Christ, right? And because uh, we're bondservants to Jesus Christ, our minds are, the Bible has to influence our minds, okay? Are you following with me? Tracking with me? Okay. Psalm 119 uh, verse 11 says, your word have I hid in my heart. That word heart is actually literally mind. In that context, uh, because the Jews uh, saw the heart being the place of thinking. So thy word have I hid in my mind that I might not sin against God. Why is that important? Because thoughts, when you think them long enough, turn into desires. Desires, when you desire them long enough, turn into actions. Actions, when you act upon them long enough, turn into habits. Habits, when you habitually perform them long enough, turn into your character. Okay? All right, so it's really important that we understand that, right? So thoughts are the entryway into who we are. Now, here's the passage, and it's something that uh, I have uh, committed to memory, but I'm going to read this, okay? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, God's word has to become our absolute authority, okay? For though we live in this world, 2 Corinthians 10, we do not wage war as the world does. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, Okay? Now think about this. We don't wage a, a physical war. We wage a spiritual war. And how do we win that war? We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That means that we need to censor every thought that comes into our minds. Like an airport x-ray, right? Uh, I was in Hawaii about two weeks ago, and I wish I was not back here. I was in Hawaii, okay? I love Hawaii. It's my favorite place in all the world. But I remember in the airport going to Honolulu and coming back from Honolulu, we had to go through those checkpoints, those TSA checkpoints, right? And I can't tell you what an ordeal it was to take off our shoes, to take off our belts, right? To make sure that every electronic device is put through those scanners, right? That I have to go and I have to, you know, look like I'm being arrested, right? So that they could check me, right? Why do they do those things? Because they need to detect if there's a bomb or not. There's a device that could bring down a plane. As a matter of fact, I remember uh, uh, from Honolulu back here, we bought some little rice bowls, right? Uh, some microwave rice bowls, and they were in that. And they had to open it up because they thought maybe it was a, a, a device, right? And so it's a very real thing that that could happen. God's word is like an airport x-ray, right? That thoughts need to be scanned, not through religious or philosophical or practical things, but through the word of God to detect, is this harmful for me or is this good for me? Okay, so I've laid down. I'm trying to do it as fast as I can, okay? Now, I want you to picture. Here's the illustration, okay? Okay, picture my mind, okay? 
this is my mind, okay? I'm so smart that you guys are little thoughts in my mind. I think a lot, okay? So you guys are little thoughts in my mind. And these thoughts want to enter into my mind, okay? But the Bible says that I need to take, and here's my spear, okay, or my device, every thought captive to make sure that it's obedient to Christ. I need to make sure that I'm thinking the right things, okay? So help me. You guys are thoughts in my mind. The first thought comes in. Rachel, come on in. The first thought comes in, okay? And I'm taking, <laughs> I'm taking this thought, all right? I'm making it obedient to Christ, okay? So how do we determine if this is truth or this is a lie? This is, okay, as you're hearing the message, make a commitment to trust God. Make a commitment. Softball throw, okay? Make a commitment to trust God. Is this a good thought or a bad thought? It's a, well, come on, come on. My mind is better than this, okay? Good thought or bad thought? It's a good thought, right? It has to be. Why? Because, not because it's a good looking thought or it's a wonderful looking thought. No, it's because we look and we scan everything by the word of God, right? It's our airport x-ray. And the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And so, yes, I want you to have a seat in my mind. Would you come on? Let's give to a big hand, okay? All right, all right. So the second thought comes in. Wilson, could you come on in? Okay, here's a manly thought, okay? Very powerfully kind of, kind of masculine thought, okay? Now, is this a good thought or a bad thought? <laughs> on the outset, we don't know. This thought is you can have sex outside of marriage if you really love that person, okay? Ooh, okay. Attractive thought, right? Right? This is a thought that you have when you're dating that significant other. Is this a good thought or a bad thought, you guys? Okay. Well, how do we know it's a bad thought? Okay. And I've had to deal with so many of this kind of thing. Right? If we love each other, why can't we live together? Why can't you know, we do all these things together? Right? I mean, we, we're truly in love. We're going to get married someday. Blah, blah, blah. Right? How do we judge these things? Not by emotions and feelings. Not by you know, the world's uh, ideas. We judge it by the word of God, right? And the word of God says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honored by all. The marriage bed is pure and undefiled, but God will judge sexually immoral and the adulterer. So is this a good thought or a bad thought? Bad thought based on the word of God. This is a lie. So get out of my mind. I don't want you anywhere near my mind. Get out of my mind, okay? Let's give Pastor Wilson a big hand. All right. So the next thought, will it enter in? Oh, you don't know what this one's going to be. Okay. All right. Would you come on in? Now, this thought, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued, okay? I'm intrigued because this thought has a nice smile. It seems genuinely pleasant, right? And this thought is, and here's my point, God will bless me and cause me to prosper if I stay in the center of his will, okay? Amen, okay? God will bless me and cause me to prosper if I stay in the center of his will. Now, is this a good thought or a bad thought? Okay, so this thought is telling me it's a good thought, okay? Hey, God's going to give me material prosperity. God's going to give me all kinds of things that I want if I stay in the center of his will. It'll give you peace. And she shares this with me, and she has verses, right? Psalms 37 and verse 4, she says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, that sounds good. That sounds right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So is this a good thought? Listen, listen, we're confused here. 
Yeah, we're still confused. You know why? Because this thought is coming in like a genie in the bottle. It's saying, hey, delight yourself in the Lord and you'll get everything you want, right? Go to church and he'll give you a Rolls Royce, right? Do what God wants you to do and he'll give you a big house. He'll make sure that you get promoted. You hear this stuff all the time, right? On TV, you do this, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you anything you want. Is that what the Bible says? When we study God's word, you know what we find? We find the idea that when we delight in the Lord, it's this idea of being one with him, in tune with him, that what he desires, I desire. And so what happens? This verse isn't saying you're going to get everything you want if you just rub the genie the right way. No, it's saying, listen, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, his desires become our desires, right? It has nothing to do with prosperity. And so this comes in as truth, but is really a lie, it's a lie. Let me give you another one. Well, the, uh, this, this, this is very persistent. And it says, no, well, let me give you Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So see, if you're called according to his purpose, everything should work out for good. Everything should happen, right? This is a verse that all of us Christians, we hold to very dearly. Now, we have to study to find out, is that true? What is the good? Is it material prosperity? Is it material blessings? No, good is found in the next verse. Remember, we have to study in context, understand hermeneutics, right? The Bible says, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, all things work together for, for you to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Is what. So the good isn't about you getting what you want. The good is about becoming like Christ. The good is sanctification. So this is, is it a truth or a lie? It's a lie. So I want you out of my life. Go. No, let's give her a big hand. She's awesome. What's my point? And this is where I close, okay? We many times get stuck with a verse. And what we do is we say this is a promise in our lives and we misinterpret it. And so when things happen, problems occur, it causes doubt. God, I thought that all things were supposed to work together for good. God, I thought that you give me the desires of my heart. Why is all this trouble happening to me? It's because we don't understand. As we read scripture, we have to read it in context. Amen? We have to understand what it's saying. Scripture can be an extremely strong promise and strength to us if we handle it and wield it the right way. I'm going to close with this. Jesus says at the end, blessed is anyone, and he tells John this, who does not stumble on account of me. The word stumble is the idea, well, actually is the word that we get the word scandal from. It's that thing that is outrageous that we fall from, right? It's the idea that we get trapped and we, we you know, uh, it's, it, it's an idea that, that we fall into things, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you want to be blessed, don't stumble on account of the things that I'm doing right now. Don't stumble on account of how I'm working all things together, okay? And trust me, that's, that's really the positive of it. He's saying, listen, you need to trust me. Don't lean on your own understanding, but commit yourself in trusting me and you will definitely be blessed in this world and the next. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you bring things into our lives that cause us to think, 
that cause us to meditate, that cause us to embrace you and come closer to you. And we pray that as we deal with doubt, that we would end up stronger spiritually. That as we deal with doubt, that we could be more gracious to those around us, Lord. That we could be humble and not proud. God, we know that Jesus Christ never allowed doubt to define John the Baptist. That he said he is a great prophet. Great among all the men born of women. And God, we know that he loved, uh, Jesus loved John the Baptist just like he loves every one of us as his disciples. Lord, we pray that we'd follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.